Well, hey, we're going to have Trevor, my buddy, come to the stage. Most of you have met Trevor. Mary and I, we met him in Cambodia in 2005 on a mission trip there. And it was love at first sight. What can I say? We just so hit it off. And, and I think the reason that there was such a connection is because God's spirit lives in both of us and in, in, in Mary as well. And it's the spirit, I think, that created such a bond, such a, a brotherly love for one another. And God, in his grace, has allowed us to see the potters every single year since 2005. Sometimes more than once. They live in Montreal, Canada. So it's quite a, quite a trip, but God has blessed us uh, with them. It was such a divine appointment. And now they're like family. I mean, we love them so much. And while Trevor was here, he offered, hey, he's like, why don't I, why don't I preach for you? And I said, well, yes, let's do that. So, uh, but I'm excited. We've talked through his message, and I'm excited for the message that God has placed on his heart. I think it will be helpful for all of us, and I'm excited to learn from him. So let's give him a warm, abundant life. Welcome. Thank you, Shane. Oh, thank you all. It's special to be here, as Shane said. It's been, I don't even know, I think 14 years, is that about right, since when we first met each other. Am I strong enough to get this up? Do I need to use... I did it. 14 years that we've known each other. uh, It's special. And not just that, but even, even being here at Abundant Life, we came back. It was the year before they got married when I first met Shane and Mary. And we, we were then invited to their wedding the year after, so we came down, came to their wedding. Uh, on the way here, uh, my then-girlfriend, my now-wife, uh, her car broke down. We had to rent a car. There's all these like unforeseen expenses. But this church, when, we, when they heard this story, uh, Shane and Mary weren't even here. I think you guys had left for your honeymoon. We came to Abundant Life on that Sunday, and you guys took a free will offering for us, a love offering for us, just to bless us and care for us. And so this place really holds a special place in my heart. So it means a lot to be here. So thank you. Thank you, Shane. Uh, I should also say, by way of introduction, um, last time I was here, I think it was like October, Zoe was six weeks old. That Sunday morning, uh, Shane got up early, he took a shower, was getting ready, he was preaching that Sunday. And then somebody turned the water off in the house. Nobody else got to shower. And of course, Shane had to take the opportunity to tell everybody that I hadn't showered that day. So I just want to say, I've, I've showered, I've put deodorant on, it's safe to come close to me. Shane, on the other hand today, I don't know. You'll have to ask him about that. Uh, let's pray, brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, what a blessing it is to have a God who so faithfully loves us and cares for us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts now as we come before your word with humility and joy and a desire to be transformed by you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Friends, if you have your Bible, please uh, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 9. You already heard the passage read, but my desire for today is both to see the inner logic of the passage, what's going on in this passage as a whole, but also for it to speak to our hearts, because that's what's most important. And you see the passage there. Watch this, Kev. You go, all you got to do is go to one slide. That's it, man. It's easy. There are two questions that's at the heart of this passage. Hit it. Beautiful. Look at that. 
Two questions that Jesus asks us that I believe are at the heart of this passage. He says, who do the crowd say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And I want to start with that second question, the who do you say that I am, because I truly believe that's the most important question that every single person has to answer and will have to answer. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that I am? Every single person will have to answer that question and does have to answer that question. There's no exception there. It is the single most important question that all of us will ever have to answer. And I would venture a guess today to say that you would answer in the same way that Peter did by saying you are God's Messiah. That's what Jesus, or that's what Peter says in verse 20 of our passage today. We all generally know the right answer. We know that Jesus is the Messiah. But I would also venture to guess that if you're anything like me, that there can be a gap at times between what I proclaim with my mouth and what's actually true in my heart. That's just me. So I would suggest, here's a way to sort of dig into this a little bit more, to to really answer this question for ourselves. I would suggest that if we really want to know what's going on in our hearts, if we really want to know who Jesus is to us, then I would encourage you to think about that question the next time you face challenges and difficulties in your life. When things aren't going the way that you had expected, That's the time to ask that question. When you're experiencing a difficult situation, do you turn to God in a critical manner? Did you expect him to prevent all the trials in your life? Are you angry with him for not doing that? Or do you turn to him with a posture of trust, knowing that even in the midst of life's most difficult challenges, Jesus is there with you? That's a way to to get at that question. Another way to think about it is, what's your posture towards Jesus when you experience difficulty? Is your posture accusatory? Like, how could you make this happen to me? How dare you? Why this? Why me? Or is it open? Do I have my hands open to God and say, I'll trust you in all things? That you truly do work all things together for the good of those who who love you. Is that the posture of my heart? That's just a way to get at at that because I think it's important. We can all say that we trust that Jesus is the Messiah. We we can say that we know that that's true. But what is what's really going on in our hearts? That's an important question to be asking. And I don't say that because I want to induce guilt in anyone or, or shame or anything like that, but Jesus does actually care what's going on in our hearts, right? That's what matters the most. And I think we see that in our passage today, this, this desire for Jesus to always want to speak to our hearts and draw us closer to, the, to him. <clears throat> when Peter answers the question, he answers it the right way. He knows the right words to say. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But if we look at the passage, what we'll see starting in verse 22 or even in verse 21, it's clear that Jesus wants to draw both Peter and us more deeply into what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and how he's then calling us to live in light of the reality that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Jesus says this, you see it in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Jesus wants us to know that his Messiahship involves both suffering and death for him in order to bring about the life 
of the world. That's the goal, ultimately. It's about life to the whole world. That's what Jesus' Messiahship looks like for him. But he also wants us to know what it looks like for us as well. What does it look like for Jesus to be the Messiah in our lives as well? And so he says, in starting in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me or my sake will save it. Jesus' Messiahship means death for us also. Death to our need to be in control. Death to our need to have everything our own way. Death to living for our own selfish ambitions and deceits and, and, and desires and ambitions. Death to anything that is opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus says that his Messiahship means death for him, that he might bring life to the world, and it means death for us also that we might find true life, abundant life in Jesus and participate with him, partner with him in bringing life to the whole world as well. This is what Jesus' desire is for all of us. And that leads us to the very thing that I think I want us to consider most closely today. And that is how our experience of life in Jesus, and it's good that we're hearing this after hearing from um, the youth who shared today about their participation in what Jesus is doing in the world. But what I want us to think about is how our experience of life in Jesus also turns us to the world around us and invites us to care for those around us. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about what Jesus wants to do in me and then turn my eyes to focus on the world around me. In the very same way that the great commandment calls us to recognize both, both the call to our relationship with God, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, here's what I want to suggest for today. That these two questions in this passage, don't break them up in your mind, actually hold them together. These two questions in this passage, when you take them together, focus us in the same way. They focus on our relationship with God and our relationship with those around us. So ultimately what I want us to do is to think about how we answer the first question about the crowds, the people around us, and how that actually affects the way we live into the second question, how we live into our pursuit of Jesus. That's my desire for us today. Make sense? Yeah? Good so far? Okay. All right. <clears throat> first question is this. Who do the crowds say that I am? And Jesus' disciples, of course, answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And if you were to look earlier in the passage in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 9, it's the exact same words uh, that the people around Herod said to Herod when he asked, who is this Jesus? Exact same words. So what I want you to notice there is that these were the common ideas that were going on around Galilee at the time of Jesus. The crowds didn't necessarily think that Jesus himself was the Messiah, but they, they thought that he might be the Messiah's forerunner or some other great prophet of old, John the Baptist, come back from the dead or something like that. And there's two things to notice there. The first is that the crowds recognized something special about Jesus, even if they didn't think that he was the Messiah himself. They knew that God was doing something unique and special in him and through him. And secondly, they seemed to think that Jesus was at least somehow related to the Messiah. You can almost hear Malachi 4-5 in the background 
of the crowd's words. Malachi 4.5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's why the people, the Jews of, of Jesus' time were looking for someone to, to make the way of the Messiah. Behold, someone's coming in the desert. So you can almost hear that in the background of the crowd's words. So even if the crowds themselves don't think that Jesus is the Messiah, he was stirring up messianic hopes. And that's what I want you to think about. Hope is at the heart of what's going on in their, in their hearts and in their minds. Now, if we were to ask the people around us today, uh, who do the people around us, who, who do the crowds around us say that Jesus is, then obviously the response would be very different. They wouldn't say John the Baptist or Elijah or some other great prophet of old. They would say the Messiah or the Son of God or, or God himself or maybe some great moral teacher not necessarily God, but maybe some great moral teacher, or maybe even a delusional figure. They would answer all sorts of different ways, but the point is that none of those answers would be the same as the crowds around Jesus at that time. And that's simply because we have 2,000 years of Christian and now post-Christian history behind us. The people of Jesus' day were looking forward. They were looking forward with messianic hope. Today, the people around us look backwards. They look back at Jesus. So here's what I want to suggest. It's actually not helpful to think, can we ask the same question in the exact same way about the people around us? I think a more similar question, a more helpful question to get at, would be what are the hopes of the people around us? What are their desires? What are their deepest longings? Where are they looking for salvation in the world? Where are they looking ahead for salvation? That's the question I think that's at, at Jesus' heart when he asked this first question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Where is their hope? Do they look to me for their hope? Or are they looking elsewhere for salvation? It's looking forward. And I just want to say, I think that question about hope is the most important missional question that we can ask. If we want to be God's people on mission, I think the question about hope is the most important missional question that we can ask. What do the people around us hope for? What do they long for? Where are they looking for salvation? And it's important that we ask this today. Not just what are the people around us, what were they looking for and hoping for 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even 10 years ago. Here's what I want to suggest to you. If you actually want to be missionally minded, what are the people around you today, right now in Maslin and here in Ohio, what do the people around you hope for? Where does their hope for salvation lie? Every generation of Jesus' followers has to ask that question, and they have to ask it afresh today. And we are no exception. What are the hopes of those around us? I want to just sort of venture a little bit of an answer to get us thinking about this, but I would invite you to think about this for yourselves. If you really want to be missionally minded about the people around you, what are their deepest hopes? That's what you have to ask yourself. So here's what I want to say. I want to start by saying that every generation is both the same and different. They're the same in that our basic desires are all the same. We all want love. We all want acceptance. We all want a sense of belonging. We all want to know what our true purpose is in life. We all want to experience true joy and contentment. Every generation is the exact same in that way because all of us have been created in the image and likeness of God. 
For all of us, God has set eternity on our hearts. Therefore, we are all the same in that way. We all long for, all, for God. We all look to him who created us and called us into existence. We long to know him who names us and gives us a real sense of, of true identity. We all long for, for God, whether we were aware of it or not. I, w- I would suggest to you that even the people around you who don't know Jesus, this is their true longing in their hearts. They long to know who Jesus is. They long for God. Every generation in that way is the exact same. Here's what's different, though. Every generation is different in how they pursue God. There might be certain commonalities between generations, but generally speaking, every generation is different because things change. Norms change, ideas change, cultures change. Therefore, how we pursue God is actually going to be unique in every generation. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think that we're all generally aware that there are very significant cultural shifts happening right now. Can we agree upon that? That there tends to be, when we look at it, this shift in the way that people talk about it from the modern era to this post-modern era. And I don't want to get too bogged down in all the details, but, but very, very broadly speaking, here's what I would say, that the shift from modernity to post-modernity is a shift to an emphasis on experience. In the modern era, the emphasis was on reason. Primarily, people engaged the world with their minds first, whereas in this postmodern era, the emphasis is on experience primarily. It doesn't mean that reason doesn't matter or that people aren't asking deep questions. It just means that reason isn't the primary way in which people seek to engage with those deep longings within their soul. People aren't simply looking for true answers. They're looking for an experience of the truth, an experience of what's true. And by way of example, I would say just look at social media as an example. People aren't necessarily sharing ideas on there. They do, that's part of it, but it's primarily about sharing experiences. When I was thinking about this, I was reminded that for me, one of the most helpful things that happened to me was about, I don't know, somewhere around like 14, 15 years ago, something like that. There was a young man when I was a youth pastor who gave me the best criticism I ever received for my preaching. I've received lots of criticism since, but (laughs) he gave me the most helpful criticism that I've received. One day after, we used to go off for like youth church during the service, and I would preach every Sunday. One day after the service, he looked uh, just sort of down, and I went up to him and said, what's going on? What's wrong? And he sort of reluctantly, you know, he loved me. I know he did, but he reluctantly sort of blurted out. He's like, you just tell us the same thing all the time. You tell us about Jesus, and then you tell us to go out and tell others about Jesus. I didn't like it at the time, but he was absolutely right. That's sort of what I was trained to do. You get the right information in your head about Jesus, and then you go tell others about Jesus. But what this young man was telling me was that he didn't want to just know about Jesus and then feel a certain pressure to go and tell others about Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to know how to experience Jesus, how to follow Jesus, how to walk with him every single day, and I was not doing that for him. I wasn't helping him in that process. That was his criticism of me. 
That has been so helpful for me to hear. It's shaped both the way that I preach and also, hopefully, uh, the way that I disciple people and care for people. But I share that story because I think that's what the people around us are actually looking for. That's their thought as well. They don't simply want to be told about Jesus. They want to know how to follow Jesus in a deeply experiential way. And they're actually looking to us to come along beside them and help them learn how to do so. So here's what I want to suggest. This means at least three things for us as some takeaway points for us to think about here. It's going to be more. I invite you to think about it, but here's three things I invite you to consider. The first is this. If the people around us are looking for this experience of Jesus, an experience of what's real and good and beautiful and true in the world, and they're looking to us to help shepherd them through that, then we first and foremost have to be a people who experience Jesus for ourselves. We have to follow Jesus in this deeply experiential way. We can't, you can't lead someone into something that you don't know yourself. We all agree upon that. We have to be a people who experience the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God every single day of our lives and be able to cry out with the psalmist, Oh, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just to tell it as information to your head. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come experience his goodness for yourself. So we first and foremost have to be people who experience God's goodness for ourselves, walk in his mercy every single day. And I just want to say, and you even see it at the beginning of this passage, the very first words of verse 18 are Jesus was going alone to pray. Did we notice that? Even though the disciples followed him and and they went with him and they asked him these questions and he asked them these questions, they engaged. Jesus was going alone to pray. Something that it requires from us if we are to be experiential followers of Jesus, to really sit at his feet, is that we need these healthy rhythms and practices to our lives. Just like Jesus needed to go and sit at his father's feet, experience true and deep communion with his Father, so too do we have to have these healthy rhythms and practices to our lives that we can show people how to follow Jesus and walk in the footsteps of Jesus and experience Jesus. Second thing, that we have to be people who understand that our pursuit of Jesus is a pursuit of him over our entire lifetime. Isn't that a beautiful thing? There was a woman at church uh, last, well, a couple weeks ago now at my church who got up who had been following Jesus 62 years. And she just wanted to say every day is fresh and new with Jesus. And I thought, what? A, that's incredible. What a gift to hear that. Following Jesus is a gift that we receive every single day over our lifetime. It's not just a one-time thing. Jesus is always inviting us, come deeper. Come more closely. I want you to know me more. I want you to experience my goodness more. He's inviting us to follow him over a lifetime. And so I would invite you, this week, reread this passage, and here's my invitation to you, to hear that second question, who do you say that I am? When Jesus asked that, hear him asking you that very question, who do you say that I am? And don't try to answer it as a static question, like as a one-time thing. 
but actually come to him with this posture that says, I want to follow you over a lifetime. Like, teach me the answer to that question over a lifetime. Don't hear it as something you just want to answer right now, and that's the end of it. But come with this posture of openness. Teach me, Lord Jesus. Like, I do want to know who you really are. Show me, and I want to spend my life following you, and you show me that. That's my invitation to you. Don't hear it as a static question. Hear it as an invitation to spend your whole life learning the true answer to that question. And third, thinking about life as a journey with God as we follow Him for our whole lives, I think it's also important that we recognize that the people around us aren't simply looking for teachers of the faith in the sense of like this top-down sort of thing. They're looking for fellow pilgrims along the way. People who are actually pursuing Jesus for their whole life, always asking that question, Lord Jesus, teach me, and they want people to come along beside them and walk with them. Not just teach them the faith, even though orthodoxy is so important. Right? Knowledge and understanding of Scripture and Jesus is so important. But people are looking for others to come along beside them as together we walk in this pursuit of Jesus and follow him. So here's the image I want to leave with you. Another scripture to meditate on this week. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, of course, is this great resurrection chapter in Luke. But the, the, the passage that I'm thinking about is the Emmaus Road disciples. That's the church that I pastor, actually. Emmaus Anglican Church. So I'm a bit biased towards this passage. I love this passage. But nevertheless, I think it's truly an image for us to think about today. In Luke chapter 24, you see these two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem and they're going back um, to Emmaus, they're, they're, they're downtrodden, they're brokenhearted, they're, disappoint, they're disappointed, they're without hope. Why? Because they think that Jesus is dead. They've heard these reports that Jesus might be alive, but they think it's crazy, and they're going back to Emmaus, brokenhearted and without hope in the world. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to them, Jesus comes up, and he starts walking beside them. He doesn't stand in front of them and start necessarily teaching. He starts walking with them, first and foremost. And as he's walking with him, he opens the scriptures to them and he, and he teaches them that the Son of Man had to suffer and die and after three days rise. Again, he teaches them the truth of God's word, that Jesus truly is alive, but they still don't recognize him. It's only when they get back to Emmaus, Jesus is going to keep walking. They don't know it's him. They say, wait, stay, come, come in and eat with us at the very least. Come into my home, fellowship with me. And there Jesus takes the seat of being the host to them. He takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And in that moment, their eyes are open. In this experiential act of Jesus taking bread, offering it to them, their eyes are open and they recognize who Jesus is. And I just want to offer that to you as a helpful image to be thinking about. That we are to walk together being led by Jesus, knowing that he's walking beside us and that we're following him, wanting our, our, our minds to be transformed as he teaches us from his word and transforms our hearts, but then also to experience Jesus in the way that he just gives himself to us that we may turn to the world around us and care for them as well. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that uh, you first loved us. We thank you that you do not leave us. You will never forsake us. 
and that you're always calling us deeper, always inviting us to draw nearer to yourself, to love you and follow you and experience your goodness. And this is the deepest desire of our hearts, Lord Jesus. Not just know you with our minds. We want our minds to be transformed, to be renewed. But we want our hearts to be transformed as well as we follow you and learn what it means for you to truly be the Messiah, not, not just Lord of the whole world, but also Lord of my, my life as well. Give us that grace, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.